So here we drop into Philippians and um, come to the second section of, of Paul's prayer. Um, and Paul says, And this I pray, that you love me abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I don't know about you, if you watch a lot of TV shows, TV sitcoms, even news casts and things, but I, I find there is very much a serious lack of good masculine examples in, 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 in just in the media today. Um, I see a lot of the, 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 the father figures or even the, the pictures of masculinity on TV are just these foolish men who are just passive and the, the, to me they, I'm, I, I just I struggle I struggle with it um, not because I'm like that's not me but because that is me I, I look at that and go there are struggles that are real that I deal with and that's not helpful that that is not helpful at all there are some that are good but for the vast majority I feel like we're, we're, we're losing that vision for what good fatherhood, good masculinity looks like. And, and our, our culture, and particularly our, our kids, are in desperate need of, of, of what does this look like? And even, even us as fathers, we, we struggle to, to, to say, what, is this, what does this look like? What, is, what does genuine humanity look like? This isn't a Father's Day sermon, by the way. Um, this is a sermon for the church body, but I do want to make specific applications throughout, or at least at the end, to fathers, uh, because I see it so prevalent in the text. So if you're a mom, if you're not a father, if you're a child, whoever, don't check out and go, well, this is just for dads, because it's not. But if you are a dad, please listen up, um, because this has specific uh, application. So there's a desperate need for that in our, in our, in our lives today. Um, and it's reflected in our prayer life. You think about the privilege of prayer. Here is the sovereign God of the universe, the one who fashioned everything from nothing. The, the entire world, the entire universe holds, held in his hand. And if you're a Christian through Christ, you have access to him. You have an audience you have an audience with the God who made volcanoes. You have an audience with the God who causes rain to fall and, fly, and flowers and plants to sprout. You have an audience with Him to ask anything that's according to His heart and it will be done for you. That's, that's, a, that's a promise. And yet I think we really struggle to believe that. We really struggle to in, engage in that. We might have a good theological understanding of prayer, but when it comes to actually doing it, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. It, that, that's the problem of prayer. We have the privilege of prayer, but there's the problem of prayer. Oftentimes our lives are filled with unbelief. don't really believe that God's going to come through on this. There's distractions. How many, times do you, how many times do you maybe sit down to pray at a meal or you sit down to pray in your own quiet time 
And you get about three sentences in and your mind distracts. It goes somewhere else. It goes to, you know, what you've got to do tomorrow at work or you've got a project that you're working on or you're trying to work out this, this problem, trying to figure out this thing, whatever it is, and that's where your mind goes. Or the kids come in. Daddy, I got a stuffy nose. Mommy. Sister just peed over there. Change a diaper. Distractions. Unbelief. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. And yet prayer is one of the is, is the richest place that we have for communion with God, with the very sovereign Lord of the universe who has redeemed us. So we need help. We need help. What should our prayers look like? What what should we pray for? What do you pray for for your children? What do you pray for for your spouse? Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle not only with what to pray, but to actually pray? We need help. We need help in this area. Further than that, what, what moves us to pray fervently? What, what puts rebar in our souls to drive us to prayer when we need to most? We find help from Paul here. We find help from Paul who, who is richly a man of prayer. You read his letters, so many of them opens with thanksgiving and prayer. He writes and he'll, he'll write strong theological truths about God and about Christ and about who we are, reminders, and then he moves just straight into praise and into prayer. It wasn't sort of this choppy thing in his life where he's like, okay, I've got my theology here and I've got my affections and my care for people over here and I've got my prayer here and you know it, it, was, it was just a seamless part of his, his life. So we can find a lot of help from Paul. So as we jump into this and, he, and here's what I want. I want us to have I want us to have a clear vision for what we should pray. Fathers, what you should pray for your children. Moms, what you should pray for your kids. Spouses, what you should pray for each other. That we don't miss the mark. That we don't land on something that is of lesser value. And I I think Paul hits the nail on the head here. So let me give you the context. Here's Paul. Paul's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. He's, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a, a Roman guard 24-7. He's got a little bit of freedom kind of here and there, but he's still under house arrest. He's experiencing suffering, persecution for the proclamation of the gospel. And he's been taken to Rome for trial and will eventually be executed. So Paul's there, and the Philippians want to encourage him. They want to lift him up. They want to support him. And so they gather together a, uh, an, an offering for him, financial support, and they say, we can't all go. We can't all go. We, we would love to. We can't all go. It's a dangerous trip. Sickness, death, a lot of things can happen, you know, on a travel to Rome. It's not like they get an airplane and just fly, drop into the airport and go over here. It was a dangerous journey. And Epaphroditus stands up and he goes, I'll go. I'll go. I'll take, I'll be I'll be the messenger. I'll be the conduit of your love for Paul, and I'll go. And so he goes, and Epaphroditus goes, and he brings the offering to Paul. Paul's so grateful. He's so thankful. He's not thankful because he was in need of money. He's thankful because 
the Philippians were partnering with him in the gospel. He says, I, I see your love for Christ, Philippian church, and I'm so thankful. I'm thankful you didn't wander away down some path. I'm thankful you haven't gotten sucked into the ways of the world, but that you love Jesus and you're so in love with Jesus and you're so richly strong in your faith and you're growing in your faith that you have Help, you have sent support for me. I'm so thankful for that. You're a, you're a participant in the grace of God with me, is what he says in verse 7. And so Paul thanks him. He writes the letter, still chained to that, still chained to that Roman guy. He writes his letter. And he's stirred to thank God for the Philippians, for their participation in the gospel. Now he moves to make a request of God. Now here's the question. What does he ask for? What does Paul, chained in a prison in Rome, ask for in this letter? Ink's precious. No, it's not like he's going to type out this long novel or anything. What does he ask for in a few words? What would you ask for? What would you ask for? Imprisoned? For holding to truths that you believe in. And you write a letter home to your church. You write a letter to your family. What do you ask for? What Paul doesn't ask for is probably what should catch our attention. Paul doesn't ask for release from prison. He doesn't say, pray that, pray that I'll get out of here. Pray that I'll, I'll be removed from this suffering. He doesn't pray for their safety. He doesn't pray, I hope you don't experience any of this. Suffering's bad. I pray that you don't experience any of that. If anything, he says the opposite. He goes, prison's great. I wish you were here. As in chapter 2, he says, to you it has been given the gift of suffering in the same manner as I am suffering. That should rock our world. What is it about Paul that says, I count all things as loss in order that I may gain Christ? Something is different there. There's a foundation there that should cause us to pause and ask that question. What does Paul ask for for the Philippian church? He doesn't pray their kids would be safe as they go to school. He doesn't pray that they'd, they'd grow in their material possession. He says, I pray that your love will abound still more and more. I pray that your love will abound still more and more. What occupied Paul's mind in, in this time? Love. It was love. So what should we pray for? We should pray for love. Now immediately, your mind may get off track. So let me help kind of bring us back in. Because what Paul does not mean is, this, is that warm fuzzies would rise up in your heart. That... Evan and I would sit across from each other and googly-eyed and just, hmm, that would be weird. But he doesn't mean this Greco-Roman type of puppy love that we think of when we think of two people who meet in a coffee shop and they have a moment, whatever that means. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that your emotions are now what drive your life. He doesn't mean that. There's a proper place for emotions. We'll get to that. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean what is now the progressive drumbeat of love. 
as non-judgmental affirmation. Non-judgmental affirmation. Because the city of Philippi would be all about that. The church in Philippi would not experience suffering if they were to affirm the culture around them in the name of love. It wouldn't happen. So Paul doesn't mean that. So what does he mean? Paul means a selfless, giving love. How do we know this? Because that's what the Philippians did. It's what the Philippians did. They pulled together funds, and they said, we want to give this to you. Even though it may hurt some of our pocketbooks, we're going to give. That's what Epaphroditus did. It says he came close to death because of his love for the gospel and getting this to Paul and supporting Paul, seeing the gospel change lives. The demonstration of the Philippians' love was what stirred Paul to pray and to write this letter and then to pray that this type of love would continue to grow. Paul also he later points to, points to Jesus. Jesus' own self-giving love is the reason for the Philippians to grow in love. Flip over just a, a page or two to Philippians 2. Verse 4, Paul says, word of exhortation to the Philippians, he says, don't merely look out for your own personal interests. Look out for the interests of others. What does love look like? Love looks like you giving up of yourself for the holy good of others. Put others' holy interests before your own. And what's the example that he gives? What follows is Jesus. He said this was Jesus' attitude. This was Jesus' perspective. He existed in the form of of God, but did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, what did he do? He clothed himself in flesh. So I'll become man. I'll become man. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does selfless, giving love look like? It's also a costly love. It's a costly love. What did it cost Jesus? It cost him his life, right? It cost him his life. So, Christ, Christ's love for us is displayed in his death on the cross. And it is because of Christ's love that God exalts him. Look at verse 9 said, for this reason also. What's the reason? Well, for this reason also, God highly exalted him, highly exalted Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those excuse me, who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, that at every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? Why did God exalt Jesus to the highest place? Why was he exalted? Because of his display of perfect selfless love. Because of his display of perfect selfless love. Think of this at Jesus' baptism, Mark 3. Jesus is baptized and God speaks from heaven. And what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here is Christ who receives the honor of the Father, the blessing of the Father. And God says, I'm pleased with him, even before he displays this selfless 
giving love. Father and the Father, the Spirit, the Son had worked this out from eternity past. This is the plan. And the Son says, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do this. And the Father says, I'm pleased. I'm pleased because you have given up all of the rights that you have as my divine Son, heir of all things, creator and sustainer of the universe. You've set that aside and you can have a fun conversation with Alan about what that actually looks like. You know? You set, you set that aside in order to redeem my image bearers. In order to, to be an image bearer and to show them exactly what this looks like. I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased with you. This is what love looks like. Church, this is what love looks like. I think we gloss over that so easy. Yeah, Jesus is love, and yeah, we've got that, but do we get it? Do we get it so much that it affects us in how we love others? John captured this, and he says, he makes this connection. He says, 1 John 3, 16 and 17, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? John, he got the connection. If Christ has done the greater thing of laying down his life for us, then we ought to lay down our lives for, for others. But, but even still, the lesser thing is if we have material possessions, if we have things that will eventually burn up on the day of Christ's return, it should be a small thing to give those up for the holy good of somebody else who has a need. Selfless giving love means dying little deaths daily, deaths to our agenda, deaths to our personal limited schedule, deaths to our Selfish affections, death to our own needs, death maybe even to our own rights. And some, even big deaths, even laying down your life for the cause of the gospel. <coughs> and we talk about love as being costly, as being self-giving. A symptom of sin which will sometimes arise is asking the question, well, how much do I have to give? How much do I have to give to earn God's favor? How much do I have to give to show that I'm a Christian? How much do I have to give? How much do I have to give? And here's another spin on the question. How much do I have to give before I can turn my love back to something else? How much do I have to give before I turn my love back to something else? How much do I have to give to my spouse? How much do I have to give to my children? Maybe to that awkward coworker, to a neighbor, before I can have me time. Because if I'm honest, that's what I really want is me time. And if I can procure that by giving up of myself, I'll do that. Whatever makes me feel better at the end of the day. How much do I have to give before I can go till and water and harvest my own barrel, a barren idle garden? 
You know, a, uh, an astute lawyer once asked Jesus the same question. Who's my neighbor? Was the question. And Jesus answers him with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he asked him at the end of the parable, who was the neighbor? Implying, obviously, the Good Samaritan was because the Jews hated Samaritans. And so Jesus used the parable to show the lawyer his own prejudice, his own racism, just how limited his picture of neighbor was. And he says, this is all. When I say all, I mean all. Your love is, has no bounds. Your selfless giving love has no bounds. Peter asked a similar question when he asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? How many times do I have to give up of myself before I can draw the line in my sand of my own rights and go, no more? And Jesus says 70 times 7, basically. There is no end to it. There is no end to it. We need, when we do not see God and his glory as the highest pursuit of of our lives, we will use love as a means to secure his favor only so much as we value that favor. Because oftentimes something else is more valuable to us. Paul wanted the Philippians' love to abound more and more. May your, may your selfless giving love that you've just shown to me, may that abound. May it be a fruitful harvest. You see, Paul nor the Philippians had reached th- that upward call of their, in their lives to completely display God's love. So Paul said, may this love that you're showing me, may it, may it abound, may it grow, may it keep going. Because this is the big thing. Your life can be invested in a lot of other things, but this is the big thing. There's the temptation for us to pat ourselves on the back and say, I did my good deed for the day. I did my good deed for the day. Be satisfied with that. Don't be complacent in self-giving love. Never be comfortable. It's what Paul feared for the Philippians. That they'd send that gift and they'd go, hey, we did a good job. We helped out a missionary. No, no. We were good to our spiritual father. Now we'll go back to what we were doing. Paul says, don't let that be the case. When you give and you see this, see that as the highest expression of God's love for you, and may it whet your appetite to do that more. Fathers, don't look at your children and go, okay, well, I've, I've filled my quota for time with them, of giving up of my own agenda. Never be satisfied with that. Never be satisfied with that with your spouse. Never be comfortable in self-giving love. So Paul means a self-giving love, and that's a costly love because it means giving up of ourselves. The small things that we would treasure more than God's love and God's glory and his love displayed for other people through us. But look how Paul qualifies this back in Philippians 1. It says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. And how? How does he want their love to abound? He says, in real knowledge 
in all discernment. Paul wanted their love to abound still more and more. Sorry. He wanted their love to abound in real knowledge in all discernment. Paul was not asking that they become smarter or wiser. He doesn't specifically mean, I hope that you'll fully grasp Grudem's systematic theology. You'll be able to intellectually process this and have good theological discussion. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that he wants them to be wise in the ways of the world. That's something we're prone to pray for, right? Pray for my kids, that they'd be good managers of money. Pray that they'd have a good career, you know, that they'd, that they'd choose a, a culturally honorable position in life. Paul says, I pray that your love would abound in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul prays for a discerning love. He prays that the Philippians, that we would become wiser in our care for one another. He's requesting that spiritual insight be given to the church so that they may know best how to love one another. So they may know best how to love one another. Now this stands in, in very stark contrast to the non-judgmental affirmation definition of love that our culture is espousing now. Doesn't it though? Doesn't it? In, in, in the movement that says, well, you be you and I'll be me and whatever you is to you, I'll, I'll affirm that. And that's my expression of love for you and you do the same for me and we're good. That, that, that takes discernment out of the picture. That takes any real knowledge about how a sovereign God has designed his image bearers out of the equation. It's an undiscerning love. And the danger of an undiscerning love is that it will not fight for what's best for someone because it does not know what's best or it refuses to acknowledge what's best. And that is dangerous. That is dangerous when you do not know what to fight for in someone else. And you don't know what is good to fight for. So we should pray for these things for each other. Pray that your brothers and sisters in Christ would have discernment in their relationships with others. Think about this. If you went to the doctor, if you went to the doctor and you sat down, you had blood work, and this doctor looked over your blood work and came in, and let's say he was a loving, well, the doctor comes in and he sits down with you. The truth of the matter is you have a malignant cancer. You don't know it. How would a loving and wise doctor handle that? I can tell you if he's not loving, I can tell you how he wouldn't handle it. He wouldn't ignore it and go, you know, you're, you're fine. Going about your business. Go, I'll see you in six months. Would that be loving to you? No. No, absolutely. He would be fired for malpractice. I guarantee you that. Nor would he come in and just go, well, you got a malignant cancer, you got three months to live. Deal with it. See you later. No. No. He would bring the truth of that. He'd bring that truth to you gently. Sit down. I got some news. Okay. You're dependent on that, on that doctor to help you in that moment. You got cancer. 
Here's the chart. Here's, here's what's happening. I want you to understand it. How you doing? How you doing? Do you have any family? Do you have any family you want to bring in? Okay, I see you're, you're having a tough time with this. I, I understand. I, I understand. I've seen this before. But hey, here's good news. There's a treatment for it. It's a hard treatment. But it's got a 99% success rate. Let me walk with you through this. Let me link arms with you. I've taken patients through this before. Let me help you. Real love lives in and engages with the real world. And it leads others with hope to face that reality too. That's what real love does. There's a lot of need for discernment in our relationships. How to encourage one another, how to admonish one another, how to stir one another up in ways that glorify God. Because you, you may go tomorrow to work, you may go tomorrow to the park, to school, to wherever. You'll have a conversation with somebody. And you may see the need that that person has, but you have no idea how to speak to their heart. Or it may go the other way. You may have a conversation with that same person and go, I know exactly what you need. Or you think you do. And you go to try and fix their problem, and it blows up. We need a sovereign grace in us, in our relationships with others. Because you're looking across at a person who's got the same cancer you do. And we need mercy and grace in our lives to speak truth in love to one another. To bring reality to bear on one another's lives with the grace that God gives us in Jesus. Dennis Johnson, a commentator, says this. He said, God's love for us in Christ should make us long to become a person who rejoices to put others first. So this is the type of love that Paul wants in us. Hope you feel the weight of it. Hope you feel the weight and the costliness of this. I'm sure the Philippians did. They were in a culture probably not unlike our own where this type of love caused them suffering for the gospel. It was costly for them to live this way in their city as it is and continues to be for us. So this is the type of of love that Paul wants. And out of this, Paul has three reasons why this should occupy our prayers. Why should we pray this for one another? I'll give you three reasons. One, to prove what is excellent. Verse 10, so that, Paul says, I pray this for you, Philippians, I pray this for you, church, that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment in your relationships with one another and your relationships with people outside the church. Why? So that you may approve the things that are excellent. The picture here that Paul paints is one of a scrupulous buyer who goes into the market and picks up various products and tests them to see if they withstand the claims that their sellers are pitching before it comes to a purchase decision. We do this with, with like new cars, right? You go online, you Kelly Blue Book, and you, know, you, you see, okay, which one's got the best safety features, and you examine and you weigh these before you make a big purchase. Maybe you do it with a computer. Maybe you do it with a home. 
right? It is a costly purchase for you. Therefore, buyer's remorse is something you want to seriously avoid. Nobody wants to hear the word lemon or use that word lemon in a conversation with somebody where you just bought a new vehicle. You don't. You want to be a scrupulous buyer. The word approve has the same connotation as testing metal with fire to burn off the impurities until the precious metal remains. What Paul is saying is, he says, I pray that your love will abound in knowledge, real knowledge and discernment so that you'll you'll develop a taste for the things that really count. But the things that really count in life. It says later in Philippians 4, 8, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything good, worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. So let me ask you today, are you striving to know God more and more each day, asking him to change your heart to value what he values? Because the temptation is in our, in our vanity fair of culture, we have stuff that's thrown out at us daily to say, value me, value me, value me. Drive down the highway and you'll get billboards that just throw that out at you. Pop-up ads on your computer. Bloop, bloop, bloop. You open your refrigerator and stuff just jumps out. Are you striving to know God more and more, praying that he will give you a loving wisdom that approves the things that are excellent and that are excellent according to him, that values things the way he values, that the dross of lesser treasures will be stripped from your life and the precious treasures of gospel-saturated relationships would hold the biggest place in your heart. Fathers, how are you living your lives with your children? Are you living your life in such a way that you demonstrate what is excellent to your children. You will demonstrate something to your kids about what is excellent. I see that in my own life. My kids pick stuff up and they start to mimic me and do things and I see that I'm showing them what daddy values most and they're catching that. Sometimes it's good and, I, and I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I praise God and sometimes I'm like, oh my goodness, I did not realize how much I valued this. And I've got to fall on my knees in repentance. Say, Lord, change my heart. Change my heart. Change my heart. How is your life demonstrating to your children what you value most? In the things you watch on TV, in the words you use around the house, in the way you treat their mother, in the way you spend your spare time? What are they learning from you about what is excellent? Secondly, to be sincere. Pray that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere. The word there is an interesting word, and it actually comes from two words, one meaning son, the son, and one meaning judge. And the picture there is, is a test in the marketplaces where someone would go to buy pottery, and in order to determine whether it was good and it was whole, they would take that pottery and they would hold it up to the sun and they would look to see if there were cracks in it. Maybe cracks that had been filled with wax or things like that that, you know, a, uh, a, you know, a seller wanted to try and buy a lesser quality good. 
still get money off of it, would fill it with cracks or something like that. Um, you hold it up to the sun. If light shone through it, you knew, well, I've got something that's of lesser value than, than, uh, than what this person's trying to sell. What Paul's describing here is an, uh, is an authentic life of integrity. It's a character that doesn't break under pressure. And so he says, he's, he's praying for a love specifically that does not melt, doesn't fall apart when it comes in contact with difficult, challenging people. Pray that your love will abound in this way. It will be a love of integrity. So how sincere is your life? Any moral cracks in your life that the Lord is dealing with you on? Fathers, is the grace of God for you and Christ producing a life of integrity, a consistency and character with the people in your life? Are you, are you one way at work and a different way at home? Are you one way in the gym maybe or on the lake fishing with buddies? In a different way in church? Is there a consistency and integrity that the gospel is producing in your life? to be sincere. Thirdly, to be blameless. To not stumble. Literally is what it means. To live so as not to stumble in moral failure or to be a catalyst for sin in others. That's what Paul prays. He says, pray your love may abound so that you won't stumble and you won't be a stumbling block for others. Paul clarifies this in a very parallel passage in in Thessalonians 3. You don't have to turn there, but listen as I read it. Paul prays a similar prayer to the Philippians, except there is one crucial difference. Philippians 3, 11 through 13, he says, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love, there's our connection, abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Now why? Why Paul explains this, why? Why is that that he wants you to abound in love? So that he may establish your hearts Without blame, there's a connection to this, to this verse in Philippians, in holiness. There's the difference. That he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father and the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that growing, self-giving love for others is the means by which God procures our holiness. It's not the means by which you become holy, the means by which you hold your Imputed righteousness in Christ is demonstrated. What does holiness look like? Holiness looks like gently pursuing the divine reflection in others. Seeing what God values in people and drawing that out of them gently, carefully, in love and truth. This pursuit of blamelessness should, should hit us hard when we, when we look at Christianity in a Western world that has in the, in the past held up the flag and said, we've got it right, we got it right. We've looked at other religions and go, see, that's where moral failure comes. There's moral stumbling. And as we receive news that in, a, in, our, in our own faith, men of high leadership who've been looked to for so long have stumbled in moral failure, either in themselves or in complacency with others. As the Me Too movement has spread over into the Christian culture and the Christian church and we're finding that we're not as pure as we 
think ourselves to be. There is a desperate need for this type of prayer. Oh, that our leaders would be blameless. Pray this for Alan and I, because we need it. We need it. We need God's grace. Pray this for yourselves. Pray this for your, for your spouses. Pray this for your children. Pray that your sons would be blameless, would not stumble in moral failure, even if it costs them six-figure salary. Pray that. There's much need for this type of prayer. And all of these are in light of the coming day of Christ. I mentioned last week, Paul had two days on his calendar, today and the day Christ would return. And he mentions this in here. He, he says, be blameless until the day of Christ. Not the day of graduation. It was a temptation to look in our, in our kids towards that. Well, maybe until this point. Until this point. This is what we aim for. All the admonishment, all the encouragement is to this. Graduation, marriage, whatever. Career. It's not towards retirement. Paul wasn't, wasn't praying towards their retirement. Wasn't praying towards even the end of their life that they would have good memories. Says there is a day in which Christ will return, and your works will be held up and tested. The only way that's going to withstand is if your love abounds in this way. Paul had a crystal clear view of what that looked like. Our whole life is preparation for that great day. When our true character is revealed, when our works of our life demonstrated whether we love Jesus or we simply made him a means of acquiring idols. Do you know that God is preparing you, if you're a Christian, to meet him face to face? He's preparing you to meet him face to face and to see God as he is in all his glory. We must reflect his image, be a living reflection of his heart. So these are the savory flavors of the fruit of selfless love. That's what Paul is aiming at. Now, last thing, because I think if we're honest and this just hits you with weight like it hit me, and come to this point and go, how in the world does that happen? I'm so unfit for that. How does this kind of self-giving love happen in people? It's a monumental challenge to live this way. Verse 11, Paul tells us, he says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Paul uses the image of fruit-bearing trees to describe godly, holy people. What does this look like? It looks like a, a tree that bears the fruit of love. Bears the fruit of love. Self-giving love is the fruit. What's the root? Verse 11. The fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the root and love is the fruit. Faith in Jesus is the root. Love is the fruit. Paul unpacks this later on. Let me read this. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Paul says, I count all things to be lost. This is Paul's own personal explanation of what this means 
for him? How does this work? How is faith in Jesus worked out in his life such that love is the fruit? Paul explains it. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul's specifically talking about his religious life, his previous religious life as a Pharisee. He was a conservative religious, religious person, very staunch. He says, I count all of those things that I did in order to, and to earn God's favor, in order to, to secure my own righteousness as a loss in value of knowing Christ Jesus. And that's an, that's an intimate knowledge. That is a personal knowing of Jesus. Why? So that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from faith, from God on the basis of faith. Here's Paul. Paul's greatest desire was to grow in intimately knowing Christ's love for him and that the fruit of that faith would be the pouring out of practical love for others. Fill me up, Lord, with the, with the love that you have for me so that that may overflow in giving love for others. In doing this, Paul was confident that he would be found in Jesus on that day. He didn't seek love. See, he didn't seek to love others as a means to gain a right standing before God. That would have been a righteousness derived from the law. But rather, his love was a righteousness that came as a result of Christ's love for him. See that Christ is not only our example to love, he's the source of our love. He's the source of our love. And this kind of God sought, God sowed love is the only kind of love that values Christ supremely and will love others as, as, as Paul says at the end of that verse to the glory and praise of God. We won't find God of greatest value and then live in such a way that he receives the glory unless we really treasure the love that he has for us. How, the, how deep his love is for us. That's, that's the root of it. So what's the application? A few points of application. And I want to close, close with a quote. One, a call to discipline prayer for the love of God in Christ to occupy our hearts. What should occupy our hearts? What should fill up our, the space in our hearts? It's the love of God in Christ. Because our, our hearts are so easily given to lesser things, aren't they? Aren't they? Given to entertainment that celebrates things which run against the grain of what call, God calls excellent and good the idols of sports, nobody's going to care on that day whether that kid caught that ball. Can we enjoy it? Yes. But when it occupies our hearts, it's going to go up in smoke. Given to lesser things, we're given to a mind that savors the thought of a new car, a new tool, a new technological gadget, a new game, a new movie, a new, you name it when such things would be outdated by Christmas. What did you get for Christmas last year? Do you remember? Maybe. How about five years ago? How many of those things are in the trash and worn out? They're temporal. 
They are temporal. Temporal when the love of God for us in Christ is of greater value and is eternal. What about the weary frustration of our, of our kids who require constant oversight, constant admonishment, but whom God has gifted to us as a means, not the means, but a means of displaying the selfless love he's shown for us in Christ. If you're a student, if you're a single person, don't feel like you, you're, you're incomplete because you don't have kids. Paul. Paul was not married, did not have children, and yet we have some of the richest explanations of parenting from him. He understood the love which the Father has for the Son and the Father has for him. So much so that he pointed to churches and said, you're my spiritual children. I call you my children. He understood it. He understood it. And having kids is only one means of expressing that, of getting to experience that. But it is certainly not the means. So this prayer is a, is a call for disciplined prayer for the love of God in Christ to occupy all of our hearts. All of our hearts. Fill it up. It's also a prayer that daily that the Lord would plant and grow the seed of righteous faith in us and bear the fruit of self-giving love. What should you pray for for other people in your life? You pray for other people in your life when you don't know. Going through a tough time, I don't know. I don't know what to pray for you. Pray that God's love for them would abound in their heart. That may mean that they come to know Christ for the first time. That the suffering maybe that they're going through would lead them to the cross. The burden of sin would fall off their back and they would know a joy that's deeper than any temporal thing they could get, than any healing they could experience. Maybe they're healed from that. Maybe they're released from that. Maybe they're not. Pray for that. Pray for that for your spouse. Sometimes we just beat our heads against each other and we have such conflict. Lord, why did you put me with this person? Father, let your love abound. Let, let your love abound in them that their love may abound. Not for my selfish gain because I've got to die to myself daily to live with my spouse regardless of who it is. Pray that for your spouse. Pray that for your children. I'm so tempted to pray for my kids. Lord, just keep them safe. Putting them in the care of someone else. Just keep them safe. They're traveling. Keep them safe. Yes, I want you, I want you to keep them safe. But above all, may your love abound in them. May your love abound in them. Because I don't want my kids to be my greatest treasure. Because should the Lord take them from me in an inopportune time, according to my agenda, I don't want to stumble. I don't want to stumble. May I be faithful to give the gospel to them. May they see in me that you are of greatest value, that you are what is excellent, and what you treasure is excellent, and that's the root of my life. So that as they get older, they can look back 
and see connections between daddy's life and Jesus, between mommy's life and Jesus. Pray the same thing for your friends. You have friends that are going through tough times. They're going through weird situations that you're like, I never experienced that. What do you pray for them? Pray that this would be true. The Lord would give you real knowledge, real discernment in your relationships so that when you speak to them, words would come out of your mouth that you're like, where on earth did that come from? Because that wasn't in here. And that when that's received... There would be grace and mercy that would be born out of that. Maybe they would see Christ for the first time. Maybe they would be renewed in their relationship with Christ. Maybe they would be steered away from a wrong path to the right path. That's costly because that could cost you the relationship. But this is what matters. Because the grace that God has for them and the love that He has for them in Jesus is of supreme value. It's the only way they'll know peace. It's the only way they'll know fulfillment. God is deserving of that glory. Pray for these things. And you're going to be given opportunities to love others sacrificially with your time, with your money, with your reputation. Selfish desires, personal agendas. I'm going to be given opportunities today when you leave here. You're going to be given opportunities tomorrow, Monday morning when you walk into the workplace. Tuesday at lunch, Wednesday at dinner. Thursday about 10.30. If that happens, you call me because I will know. <laughs> You're giving, will be given opportunities to love sacrificially. They come to us all the time and sometimes we don't even see it because we're so focused on something else. Pray daily that God would grant you the grace to make the most of such opportunities for they're the ones that truly matter. And then look for those opportunities. Pray, Lord, give me, give me an eye that would see this and would desire that your love for me would abound in my heart and overflow to people and that I wouldn't miss those opportunities to bear that fruit in their lives. Give me discernment and wisdom so I may approve the things that are excellent as I deal with people around me so that I would be sincere, be blameless until the day of Christ and that I might share this fruit with others. May the righteousness that you have given me in Christ bear the fruit of self-giving love. The world desperately needs to know, that, know the love of Jesus. And we will only have the courage to go and the integrity to endure without stumbling if the love of Christ grows unceasingly in our hearts. This is what Paul prays for the Philippians. This is what we should pray for one another. Mark the day of Christ's return in your calendar and resolve to focus your life towards that day with that in view. I want to close with a quote. It started about examples. It said we have few examples of, of good humanity in general, specifically masculinity, fatherhood. They're rare in our day. Oftentimes in order to get them, we have to go back actually in history. Not that we find perfect ones, but that we find good ones. Let me give you a quote uh, from, a, from a biography. I encourage you, read biographies. Read biographies of old dead Christians. Pastors, missionaries, 
people who saw this and said, I'm going to give my life to it, and a book was written about them. You think fictional movies and fictional books are awesome? You read something you know, about somebody who gave their life to this that really, really happened. You talk about being stirred. Missionary Adoniram Judson, missionary to India, 1800s, before he was married to his wife, he wrote a letter to his potential father-in-law, Mr. Hasseltine, asking his father-in-law for his, father's, for his hand in marriage. I want you to listen to this. This gives me chill bumps. I've, I've read this multiple times before. And, and now, as I read this years ago before I was a dad. Now I'm a dad, and I, I get goosebumps on top of goosebumps. Not because it's great and it's poetic, but because it scares me. It scares me in a good way. It causes me to look at my own heart. Because he, the way he asked this question takes eternity, pulls back the curtain, lays it before his father-in-law, and says, does the love of your heart for in Jesus filled so much that you'll give your daughter to this? Here are his words. He says, he writes, I, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him? Here's his reason. Here's his, here's his reason. Why does he say this? Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved, through her means, from eternal woe and despair. Mr. Hasseltine consented to the marriage. Two were married. 1812, they were married. They left for India. She never returned home. She never saw her parents again. About 15 years later, she died of a disease. Their child died of a disease. Judson later died himself. And yet, there's reported of at least 8,000 known faithful Christians in India and in Burmese specifically. And today, it's one of the largest and richest pockets of, of Christianity. Judson saw it. He saw the love of Christ, and it so gripped him that he said, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. I want to be a conduit of your love for other people, even if it costs me his life. I want to, my life to abound in your love for others. And he asked the question of his father-in-law. Would, would you send your daughter to this? Does your love, brothers and sisters, 
Does your love for Jesus have that kind of impact on your life? Let's pray.